Hi, I'm Garrett, and welcome to The Conversation. I think conversation is one of the most important tools we have for building and maintaining genuine relationships. In the age of the internet and social media, the conversation is a dying art. While we're technically more connected than ever, it seems more difficult than ever to engage with alternative perspectives in a meaningful way. We talk past each other and speak totally different languages without even knowing it. This show is my attempt at working on that problem. I'm trying to learn how to have meaningful conversation and practice what I learn. It's partly an experiment. Maybe if I start having more difficult conversations, I can get better at it. Maybe we can all get better at it. I don't know how this experiment's going to turn out, but hey, this could be interesting. <laughs> it's almost anytime somebody tells me they don't have time for something i like think of a head you're just you, wrong yeah, you, like, have time. you you have time it's just about how you prioritize your time and what you want to do with your time like you, you don't well, really want to do that with your time you have something else that's more important to you to do with your time and that's fine yeah and i guess to like kind of clarify what my day looks like most days i get up between 4 40 or 5 in the morning and Holy i start crap, working man. on work for my family business um then around, you know, 7, 7.15, I get ready to go to the day job. And then I go to the day job, and how it's supposed to work is I'm there 8 to 5. Um, and that's because I'm not actually an attorney yet, right? I'm an extern, so they're really not supposed to um, keep me over. But the person I'm working with now either doesn't know that or doesn't care. Because uh, he's a fresher face, so he's trying to, I think he's trying to just do good work, but what he doesn't realize is the alienating people around him. Um which he'll learn that with time. It's just been a rough week for me. And then, yeah, the last couple of days, like Tuesday, I was there until eight, which when you're, when you've got up at 30 and yeah, <laughs> I mean, it, it, what time it's do you not go like I'm a regular person. Uh, I strive for 10. Okay. 10 I strive four. for 10. What it never works out that way. So this week I've been operating on like no sleep. Um, yeah, it's not healthy. That's like totally the opposite of my life. <laughs> That's nice. I'm like, I I have I I very much just get to kind of make my own goals about what how I how I want to schedule my day, and like I mean, yeah, I work for myself, so right, so I, I have various musical projects going on every day. I, I have like, I think I would f kind of fall apart if I didn't have some level of schedule that I had to meet. I I do need some kind of routine in order to not just get to like I, motivation is a factor too and, and partially that gets like w when you have like a plan that you can just wake up and do you don't have to think about it but when you have to think okay what am i gonna do some sometimes that's yeah. really overwhelming or it just i, I just damn can't artist, work determination to do anything. schedule must be nice <laughs> i keep telling myself like you know i'm just a couple months away from starting my career at like somewhere between 70 and ninety thousand a year <sighs> Just, just keep, just keep at it. You got this, Taylor. You know what I mean? Like that's what I have to keep telling myself. Like you, you at least have there, like a big, this. a big payoff in the horizon. I'm like, I'm like, just a couple months away from releasing another project that probably won't make, won't make me any money, but it'll be, I'll, I'll be being true to my heart, <laughs> as most artists tend to do. Why do you think that? Like, why, why is that? Because like for me, that mindset isn't. I cannot work that way. You know what I mean? 
I, I could I couldn't I don't think I could work that way if that was the only kind of work I could do. But I, I do really try to struggle to figure out the balance between the different sorts of values of like obvious like I mean, money is an obvious indicator of value of like, okay, I did that and I got this much money. But yeah, it's a super easy one. It's the problem is I think it's too easy and it there's a tendency to just think about value being exclusively associated with money. Right. Because and that's dangerous. It's dangerous and it's really, I think it, it's, it's really common. Like it, it's not just dangerous to think that way. It's, it's the, the slope heading in that direction is very steep. It's a slippery <laughs> slope. Um, but I mean, I, I, it's hard not to get pulled into that because of we've kind of collectively decided to invest a lot of our understanding of value and associate it with money. So it's like, if you want to, there are a lot of things that you get for money. That's I think, yeah. the easiest way to say it. It's just like, and the amount of effort it is to invest in other things and the, is a lot. And the payoff from investing in those other things is not as obvious. Right. Yeah. So, I, I, I'm trying to figure out how to balance those things in my life as far as like, okay, I need to do this because it makes me money and I need to do this because I don't know why, but I just need to do it. I mean, that's, it's almost sort of a religious like placeholder for value. It's like, okay, that's almost a religious conception of value is like, it's, it's mysterious value. It's like you, you, ha you spend time with your family because you should, you know, it's, it's not like you, can, you can't easily quantify why it's, I mean, I, there's some ways of quantifying it, explaining why it's good to have a strong relationship with your family, but there's a general just kind of value of, okay, it's important to have a strong family, but like you can't, it doesn't translate to dollars and cents. Right. But on the flip side, like one of the things I see is, you know, being able to go out and eat every night, not that people should, but I've been doing that a lot recently and, um, not have to worry about like, you know, spending time to cook dinner do the dishes, all that. Oh uh, no, that that's super valuable to me because it's almost more efficient and in a weird way, I almost have more time. Um, so I work a little more, I work 10% more hours, right. To make what someone said, the numbers like every 10% more hours you work, you make 40% more money or something like that, which I don't know if that's true, but let's, let's assume it is. And it's like, well, if I work 10% more hours to make 40% more money, then I can, you know, not worry about cooking. And it's just one thing I can get off my plate. You know what I mean? The, the less that I have to worry about, I guess the better life is, which maybe might, might not be the best way to look at it, but well, in the same token, I, I don't want to be that person who's like stuck at work all the time yeah. and doesn't have a life and, you know, family hates him. And the thing is, so, so even you, you mentioned cooking there, there's an obvious payoff of cooking that you get to have food and you need food. Right. But that's not in this apartment, but yes. <laughs> it, that's doing sort of the same trick that we just did with money where it's like, okay, if you do work, you get money, but getting food is not the only end goal of cooking. Right. You learn an art of sorts. You learn an art. And it's like how many things, how many other areas of your life does that affect in a meaningful way that you aren't even necessarily aware of? Now, what if you live in an apartment where they put the fire alarm next to the fucking stove? Sorry, <laughs> can I curse on this show? That's fine. <laughs> it's hard to cook. 
and people are like, just don't burn your food. I'm sitting there like, the food isn't burnt. I don't know why it keeps going off, but it's super annoying. And I live in an apartment complex, so like, I'm annoying my neighbors too. <laughs> well, you just got to get one of those little... There's supposed to be fans built into if you have a stove. It should, it should have a little fan that, that yeah, sucks it up it, and sends it, it outside. It clearly doesn't do enough. <laughs> so, I can yeah, so, so there's other value to it. the experience because it helps you to build relationships with your neighbors who are mad at you for your fire alarm. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they want to talk to me <laughs> when, when, when I'm setting off the fire alarm. Well, it's really funny. It? Somebody said like the best way to build a relationship with your neighbor is to ask them for a favor. You know, Ask them to help you figure out how to turn your fire alarm off. <laughs> just rip the wiring out of the wall um you know every time i walk outside and they hear a fire alarm somewhere in the complex i'm like i feel your pain <laughs> i understand what you're going through right now <laughs> it, it, it must be a california thing because this is like it's the most ridiculous placement that you would never put it there unless it was like required by law to do so and this is a brand new building you know what i mean so it's one of those things where it's kind of like this feels like a really stupid law Written by somebody who has no idea what they're talking about. Yeah, in my apartment, you're you're not even supposed to burn candles. But fortunately, I don't I don't know if we just have better alarm fire alarms, but they they don't seem to pick up anything. We we've been able to to start some pretty big fires in there, with no no problem. <laughs> I can't. Mine's going off before the fire even starts. <laughs> so really, I guess who has the better fire alarm? I don't know. <laughs> That's funny. Well, you sidetracked my conversation about values with with your stupid fire alarm. Well, yeah, I, I guess well, the point I was getting at <laughs> is I, I would agree with you if my fire alarm wasn't going off every time I cooked anything. Fair enough. Um, well, I, I think that, I mean, that can be sort of a factor. It's like it, when when a culture has decided that, you know, that convenience is always preferable to whatever engagement or, or creation or, or like responsibilities. Right. Then we build an entire infrastructure that makes ever makes all of those already more difficult things and more difficult to see the value in things, even more difficult to do and make space for in your life because we built the whole built our built our housing, built everything around this super simplified super uh single metric focused value system right and i mean what do you think that is so you're, you're alluding to like there's maybe too much convenience in our society what value system do you think has been oversimplified because like for me what i see i see two sides of the coin i'm a political figure um so i'm sorry if i keep drawing this back to politics but like you have one side which is super personal responsibility and individuality um, to an extent that they almost, some people almost take it too far. And then you have the other side, which is too collective. Uh, they, they, they go too far down that train because they take a, a simpler truth that humans are social creatures and they blow it out um, beyond its boundaries to everything in life. And then, you know, we watch those systems fall apart as well. So like, where do you think our society as a whole has sort of landed in this range of craziness? I think I need you to spin that question out a little bit more clearly because uh, yeah, tr try that again. So you mentioned things like responsibility and, you know, convenience and I would kind of expand out. There's a huge interest in our Western society uh, for safety too. 
you know, and I see it walking away towards liberty, but liberty is still something important to us. Um, so we, we have this push and pull and you see this in superhero movies too, between safety and security or security and freedom. And it seems to me that society has decided that it wants more security and certainty than ambiguity and personal it's not personal responsibility. It's more personal freedom to just kind of be a douche. <laughs> you well, know what I mean? Yeah, I, I, I think I see. I, I think I see more of the connection you're making. Um, and I, I think that's sort of the role of government or the role of society is sort of to try to to focus on those things. I think I, I would. I, I'm more just frustrated in our tendency to kind of view our existence and view our participation in the country that we're part of primarily through the lens of government. Right. Because I, I think that's kind of where we're, where we're like, I think the point of government is to sort of provide some level of, of safety, some level of, of restriction or whatever, something like that. Um, right. But which is true. It's just that if, if we kind of think about our, our existence in the country is just kind of like, well, we don't actually do anything. We just get the government to like, we just have political views. We don't actually have individuality. I know. And it's so odd too, because people will like, if you deviate at all from the Puritan view, whether it's left or right, you get absolutely blasted into oblivion, which is really funny because most people operate in that ambiguity in that gray area that is not Puritan. But I think part, like I have the same critique, you know, it seems like, we used to operate under this guise that um, religion was the primary like intellectual thing most people engaged in, but religion has slowly seeded from the West. And now I think what's going on is why so many people tie themselves to politics, and I'm guilty of this as well. It's the last bastion. It's almost the last battlefront. You know what I mean? Because if you look at it from... I'm trying to dance around not being super like using political terms in your show. And I'm just going to get over it. If you look at like the American landscape with this right versus left divide, um, the right has seeded culture. It's seeded education. It's seeded, you know, I said culture, but like music and uh, TV shows and movies, like they don't play in any of those spaces anymore. They don't play in the collegiate spaces anymore. Uh, they're, they're not even playing the sports spaces anymore. They, they've been pushed out or have chosen to left the battle, and yeah. now they've even left the churches. Uh, you, the, the, you know, you're seeing that sort of happen. So the last place of which they're making a stand seems to be the political arena, and it's super dangerous because the political arena is not one that differences are often solved peacefully. You know what I mean. So, what what's the version of of political? What's a political ph philosophy that's totally stripped of values or of abstract values? Because I mean, that's kind of the the narrative I'm seeing that between all those things you just mentioned. Like, okay, anything that that the that the sense of progress or the sense of value is is too abstract, too vague, we either get rid of it or we simplify it until we actually have an easy metric that we can measure how valuable well, it is. Well, I guess that's kind of the problem is that there are no political philosophies that are you know that are stripped of values. Um, every political philosophy is inherently requires values, but the thing is that our politics used to play with other systems, right? Because you wouldn't 
you wouldn't see necessarily earlier on when you read people, you know, if people had Twitter bios in the 20th century and the 19th century, um, you wouldn't have seen Republican as the byline right. or Democrat as the byline. Um, you would have saw, you know, Christian or um, if, you know, from a state's context, from a U.S. context, you would have seen the person who is resident of their state maybe be the most important thing to them. Right. But that is not the case anymore. People do not go to church. Christians don't go to church. You know what I mean? Like, so yeah. now, well, I mean, nobody goes to most, church this year. <laughs> well, let's, let's pretend that's not a thing. Um, so now you have all well, these people whose primary philosophical compass is inherently political and this political compass that normally engages with other parts of yourself, whether that be, you know, what kind of culture you're into or, or religion cooking yeah <laughs> i mean all these other you're, when you're learning your lessons primarily through political thought you're not going to learn great lessons because political thought is what you're asking is how we should use the monopoly of violence that is ultimately what politics is yeah yeah I, I, and that's like i i don't have a problem with government existing and i think that that it's like okay people say you know or, or i have some libertarian friends that are like yeah the only purpose of the government is just to, to point guns at people and tell them not to do stuff. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, essentially. And because I think there there's, needs, there's truth to that statement. I, I need somebody to be useful. willing to do that because there are some things I want people to be afraid of doing uh, because there's a gun pointed at them. But the right. point is just that it, when you put all of your eggs in that basket, the only means of communication of negative, um, <laughs> the only means of, of yeah communicating negative value or, or like, I'm not sure what the word I'm looking for. Yeah, the only way of, of of encouraging somebody not to do something is basically pointing a gun at them. If the if, if that's yeah, your entire identity is just up. yeah. It's <laughs> like if if life gets distilled down to just government or, or participation in a country in in that large of a community gets distilled down to the the only thing the only meaningful interaction is just through government, then yeah, it's either the government gives you money or the government puts you in jail. Yeah, something like and, that. And it doesn't ever end well when the primary means of a country is based through politics. I mean, you know, people are gonna be like, "Oh, another conservative trotting out the same lines." But like, you look at you look at the countries like fascist Italy. You look at Nazi Germany. You look at the USSR. You look at China. You look at North Korea. You look you look at Iran even to an extent. You you look at pick your you know if you pick a African country and find the right time period, you're going to see this at play as well. Politics is the primary motivator for action is never good. And we're, we're kind of seeing it now. I mean, the sides are getting increasingly militant. And even worse, the people who wouldn't necessarily militarize are becoming desensitized to it. Right. Well, and so, so, so yeah, for one thing, it's, it's too singular of a, or it's like a, a too detached of a value system. But it's also yep. sort of a, a denial about it even being a value system. Because both, it, when, when I look at, Many people who are, you know, kind of claiming different uh, political associations in my life anyways, it's like usually, it's just kind of an appeal to reason or an appeal to like what's obvious or like common sense or something like that. There's no self-awareness of like, this is, these are values that I happen to have and I can't prove them. I just, I feel like this is important. Like it's oddly I, religious. Yeah, it's it's oddly religious, but, and it's it shouldn't even be that odd. It's like obviously it's impossible to act without having values, and obviously values by definition are, well, 
I guess that's, there's the problem is that we're kind of used to having, so when it comes to money, we kind of all just take that for granted, okay, that money equals values, and we can prove anything is value by how much money people are willing to pay for it. But when it comes to <laughs> valuing something like justice or freedom, those don't translate into money, but you just, for some reason, you, you, you have this conception that, that, that they're deeply valuable, and <laughs> you don't have to prove it. Or like, well, yeah, you, you shouldn't really have to prove it, it's a value. And that's, I don't know, how, how do you prove whether something's valuable outside of, of having something simple like money to associate it with? Right. And how do you prove it when the different metrics for something like justice are, are they're not compatible with the other side? You know, we're seeing this right now in the States with the Chauvin trial. And it's just, there are two very different lines of thought. And, you know, I, everybody has their separate opinions of the situation. But at the end of the day, the different opinions are not compatible and they're you can't make them compatible i wasn't and paying attention people, to this what's this story the chauvin trial uh, the george floyd trial okay i guess that's so still the, so the cop who um allegedly killed him is yeah is on trial right now and it's watching the political discord around it is an absolute crapshoot because you have two lines of thinking that I'm not going to say aren't willing to compromise. It's just that they can't. You know right. what I mean? Um, that's, that's, that's an important distinction. Yeah. I think because that may be kind of where we're at right now with, you know, the right and the left and, the, and their extreme disagreements is, is that like, can they actually reconcile? Maybe, maybe they're actually looking at things from too drastically different of a perspective that their views are actually irreconcilable i don't i mean the whole the whole project of like this year so far for me and doing doing this podcast and calling it this could be interesting has been kind of trying to venture through that question as as an experiment just to think okay how how different can views be and still be reconcilable is yeah, it just a I matter of patience? Of Go ahead. No, no. I mean that 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 was the end of my thought. But is it? I think partly. Um, I think uh, uh, part the issue is that this is going to sound really weird. Um, the looking at the political system in the U.S. right with this right versus left thing, I think the right has a serious problem with respect and. So there, uh, I think a big issue why the right and the left are not reconcilable at the moment is because the right really isn't willing to engage in dirty behavior. So because the question really is how much for how much pushback does it take to get the other side to listen, right? And we see and oftentimes the answer is war, which is not a good answer. I don't think we're there yet. You know what I mean? To where the the dis the disparities between what are functionally two different societies in the U.S. are so disparate, the only way to deal with the other is to take it out, right? Um, but we are humans. We are self-correcting, uh, whatever that means, and that will happen if we continue to let things kind of drift apart. And if you don't believe me, you should just study war for like a month, and you'll see kind of what I'm getting at. Um, because war happens when two societies cannot play in the same sandbox. It's just not possible. 
Um, right. So how do you, whatever. what's the alternate solution? Is it just the alternate solution like, is that you need to actually get involved and you need to actually be able to call somebody an idiot. There's this in the U S and I, I think it's a sort of in a weird way related to our education system. Because when I was young, before the schools went straight into this, um, critical race theory type of stuff, the, the answer to everything was all opinions are valid, which I would say most are, um, all opinions are valid, be respectful. And those are the most important and being respectful is the most important thing. And I think one side took that to heart and one side didn't, um, and perhaps it's just because I'm a, you know, I'm right leaning and I fight the left and the left isn't respectful to me, but I'm sure leftists would say the same thing, just the other direction. And the thing is, is that we've kind of, we, we self organize ourselves into these different camps, right? And then these camps don't talk to each other for whatever reason. Maybe it's by design with the way the internet's structured because that's our primary modes of communication, or maybe it's just because we're humans and at the end of the day, we're tribal monkeys who have no interest other than being safe within our own thought processes. Conservatives don't engage in meaningful debate and as soon as it steps out of the bounds of respectful, which it's never respectful anyway, one of two things happens. They go too far to where people are going to tune you out um, or they say something along the lines of, well, this is just my belief and that's the end of that. And they sort of walk away from the conversation. And also this is a primarily uniquely conservative issue. They, they take that respect thing and they apply it to themselves. So if someone on their side, right, for example, there's, there's net, you know, it's like they, there's this thing um, in American conservatism, Reagan's 11th Amendment, never attack a fellow Republican. It's just kind of like that by itself is idiotic on its face. <laughs> um, because not all Republicans are. Is that, are that's a real and, thing or is that just like a, a, a meme? Um, Reg, I think Reagan actually called it the 11th Amendment, never attack a fellow Republican. <laughs> and then enough conservatives believe that. That That's. Yeah horrible <laughs> yeah it's a bad idea i mean um, especially since i, I can see the difference though really mean anything i think it's important to distinguish between and, and and this is i think one of the things we're we're really struggling with because we kind of we put all our eggs in one basket as far as social life we we, we view everything through the lens of government and then our only interactions or most of our interactions are are in the room of the whole world or the whole country or our whole friend group. So we, we spend most of our time on social media and we don't, we haven't learned the value, uh, or at least I was struggling to learn the value of, of private conversations because there, there's a something that's extremely valuable about that. Like if, if you and I were, were not recording this and we were just talking, I I think it would actually be a lot more appropriate to like rip each other apart on a, in a more deep way. Yeah. Because we, we both we have that, that security. Are we afraid of the response from the other? Or are we doing that because we're afraid of the response from the listener? Well, I, I think about it almost in terms of like, it's, it's like a modesty thing even. Okay. So you, you can, you can take off, Okay, this, this is a weird, weird metaphor, but I'm thinking about it recently because one of the books I'm reading, but the idea of your identity being something like wearing clothes and there's always something underneath there. There's, there's kind of a, a 
you can take apart any identity, any truth, any story, and say, well, look, there's actually something underneath here. It's it's not really this. You know, you could you could point at somebody who's who's a doctor wearing a lab coat, and you could take off the lab coat and say, oh, look it, he's actually just a human being. He's not a doctor. You know, right. he's he's just like all the rest of us. He's just skin and bones and stuff like that. Or you know, you point to somebody who's really or maybe somebody who's who's really made out to be really beautiful and it's like okay you take off all of her makeup take off all of these all these things that, or take off all the photoshop it's just it's just just another person or even take off the skin and it's just okay this is just blood and, and bones and it's like you, you can break anything down to the and remove the identity from it until it isn't anything anymore it's possible to do that right and I think you, I mean, using, you use the term modesty and I guess that's what I'm trying to get at in my still half asleep brain. We need to stop caring as much about modesty as we do because there's this, there's two sides. And again, I'm speaking from the American context and I keep saying that cause I know you're Canadian. Um, th- there's this belief for some reason on one side that we have to be modest and being modest and we, we don't take the high road and that's a it's a noble belief and the other side isn't engaging the same tactics and they're not compatible tactics so our at least partial reliance on modesty to thinking that that's the way that we're going to cross this divide when the other side doesn't play ball is only going to lead to us dividing ourselves more and more and more and more until before you know it your modesty is being overrun by a group of people who, frankly, to be blunt about it, don't care, don't give a fuck yeah. about your modesty. Well, I, I I think that's fundamentally the the difference, though, is just like there's not just one space that you have to interact in. There are different no. levels of, of of interaction, and you can be. There's a difference between taking off all of your clothes in your own home, especially with like somebody like your spouse, because they aren't going to like. Maybe you have a really ugly mole. Maybe you have some. Oh, I got this birthmark on my leg. It's some atrocious. deformity you're covering up. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you have stuff underneath your clothes that makes you look really weird, but that's not part of the identity that you present to the world, right? Yeah. If you expose that to somebody who you know cares about you, they're not. There's a trust that they're not going to go around saying, "Ah, Garrett has a, a a crazy mole on his left nipple," which I don't, by the way. Just this is just a. This is just an analogy. <laughs> it's really on his right. But the, the, the point is like you actually, I mean, there, there would be some utility actually in letting somebody know about that mole because maybe it's cancerous. Maybe there's some problem to do with it. Or maybe it's just kind of weird looking, whatever. It's, it's nice to be able to, to, to share private information with certain people and not others. It's not just nice. It's actually, I think it's really important. You're talking about whether or not modesty is important. I think, it's, it's really important in some contexts and really not, or it's important to not be as modest in other con- contexts. If you're not willing, yeah, I, I mean, do, but like, I don't think politics is one of those contexts where it's appropriate. But the thing is that that used to operate in this bubble where there were other bubbles that you could reach into because Democrats and Republicans still went to church and they often went to the same church. You know what I mean? Or you may find them at your local YMCA or, you know, a knitting club or people still had other means to which they could self-segregate themselves but still mix their other bubbles where now everything ties back to politics. You're not going to the same church. If you have different politics, you're not going to the same thing club. If you go to the different, you know, if you're different politics, right. like it, it, and people don't realize that that's 
so bad. That's so dangerous because you're, you've nailed it with your clothes analogy. Now that I think about it more, people assume that if you're, you know, you're engaged or you've dated someone for a long time, or you're married to somebody that they think like you politically speaking, and that's just not true, right? I mean, if you look at me and my relationship, you would think, oh, if you're going to know strictly about politics, oh, they must think the same. It's kind of like we have some pretty irreconcilable political differences. But since we see each other in other lights, we're still able to reconcile us as people, and we have a much better relationship, and you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, so what's the solution, though, that you're – you're pointing to i mean so obviously the problem is that we're we're we can't fi- I, I mean i i think it's that we're sort of we're, we're uncomfortable being as intimate or exposing ourselves in in any context because it feels like there's no such thing as privacy i mean th- that's the way i'm viewing the problem is that we've, we've got so used to being in a public space and we think that's the only space there is and obviously i mean to, from my perspective it seems obvious you don't just walk around naked outside right so we're always wearing our clothes um, see, I'm not an inherently religious figure, but I think society needs to find its way back to religion or something that is religious that is not politics. We need to be able to create more bubbles and more points of contact between different sects of society because otherwise we basically ghettoize ourselves into different warring camps, if that makes any sense. Um... And so you could see so like, okay, if, if we're, if we're willing to be, you know, enemies in, in the public sphere, but we're, we're, we're brothers in Christ. When we go to church, we're willing exactly, to, but you to can't be, say that because someone's going to be like, well, I don't believe in God. It's like, okay, well, we need to find some replacement for that. that uh, I mean, there, there should be something like that sort of built into when you have a country because that, I mean, that's to me, that's what nationalism is for, or that, or that's what patriotism is for. It's like right. having some identity of, hey, we're both Americans, and so we're going to work through yeah. this. Or like, I mean, from a broader perspective, hey, we're both citizens of Earth. We're both humans. Can, can, can we be like, you know, for something together and against something together? Right. And, you know, it, it's a noble thing to say, but people just don't buy into it for a number of reasons. Because people, well, A, I mean, there's the obvious critique. Nationalism is still political. You don't solve the problem. It's like, okay, fair enough. Um, but it, it's not... The, it's it's a different level of the game though because there, there's it something that, 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 game, that's, that conservatives are trying to do and and there's values that that the left that, that liberals or leftists are trying to to aim at but then it's it's difficult right now to say there's something that America is trying to aim at because America is is doesn't really seem very much like a cohesive entity there's 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 not a shared value system that that I can easily point to, anyways. Like, could, could you could you point to something and say this is what America wants, or no, something that America is against? And that's terrifying. Um, like, I can't, and that's terrifying to, to me. That that seems like so. Is that a country? I I, I don't I don't know if America is a country. <laughs> I would need more time to play with that. Because, <laughs> um, like you know, in the past, like even I mean, not like obviously everybody in the past wasn't a Christian. They, everybody wasn't, uh, you know, a Catholic. Or um, the word is escaping me, and I should really have the word on the tip of my tongue. <sighs> Protestant. There it is. Okay. Like everybody weren't these things, but there still was enough commonalities to where there was still a thread that kind of 
connected the dots. And then even like when you introduce like religion, you can still play with, right? Because there are still threads that connect all religions in some level. Like at the end of the day, they all have a creation story. They all generally believe in good over evil. They may have different versions of what good is, but like that good versus evil thing is still sort of at play. Um, they believe in a higher power power. Often the, the ideals align themselves. You know, most religions don't condone theft or murder or, um, they, you know, they, they don't strive immediately towards war. Um, most religious look to the past for answers to the future. Like there were still common threads that if you sat down and had a conversation with somebody, you would find agreement where now the disagreements there, there are philosophical disagreements that are sort of dressed as political ones because, if I go talk to the average high schooler who's just now getting engaged and they're taking on their parents' beliefs, um, they they don't understand the philosophical difference between, say, subjectivism and another form of philosophical thought that believes in the fundamental truth. Right. And they don't well, understand I mean, that what they're really... Or... <laughs> sure. See, I'm half asleep still. Um, <laughs> I, but I, I was having a, this is what I was having my my little tweet war with somebody earlier. <laughs> there's there's a there's a guy that's kind of in my in my peripheral to my sphere of of Christian friends, and he's he has a podcast um, that's kind of very much part of the the Christian deconstruction scene, which is like people who are still like sort of comfortable associating with Christianity, but they're very kind of edgy, like almost post-Christian and like deconstructing or, or like breaking apart, like ripping up a lot of the values. I, I, I guess more just dissecting a lot of the values that they were given kind of, and just told to take it at face value growing up in Christian circles. And there's something that's really useful about that, but it's, it's, there's this annoying separation where it's like there's there's one room where people are doing that and they're kind of like anti-institutional and there's no room for that in the institution of faith. But th this is kind of inside baseball Christian stuff, I guess. But it's like w within within Christendom, there, there's groups of people who are like totally about breaking down the meaning of, of Christianity and again, breaking it down to something that they can kind of understand. And, and there's those people who are like totally fundamentalist about it. And it's like, don't ask any questions. And there's not a lot of, of connection between those two groups. But I mean, so I was talking to my, this one friend who's, yeah, he, he, he was, he, he tweeted something like, um, about the joy he gets from the freedom of, of not believing that there's anything that's objectively meaningful. And I was like, you can't believe in God and believe that statement. I, I know. So I was like, uh, okay. I, th I thought, I thought we were a little bit more on the same page about this. You, you I, 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 I want to maybe talk to him more about it because maybe he's just being, being edgy and trying to say something, something memeable. But I, <laughs> I, I don't see how you can make any sense of that statement of saying that there is no objective to focus on. He wants to focus on subjective meaning. I was like, okay, you don't have to make the claim that there is no objective meaning for you to focus on subjective meaning. You can make the claim that you can't fully know or fully grasp objective meaning. And so you have to be content with some version of subjective meaning. And I, I think that's sort of the, the perspective. I don't know that that feels like a pretty Christian perspective to me. It's like, okay, it's objective meaning would be like understanding the mind of God or like being able to, to see 
truly what every, you know, where meaning is in, in every place and to have, have a full understanding of that. But like Christians believe that God is unknowable or like eternally above our understanding. Right. So it's well, like we have a, he, he holds the final ruler for good and evil too. Like when you measure right. good and evil, it's supposed to be measured through his lens. Yeah. And so it's or like, it's, if you're going to get mad at the me point of God or like one of the, one of the primary characters. So, so it's like, God is all knowing all <clears throat> present, all, all these things. He's like, he has the fullness of knowledge, but also the other, the pill you have to swallow with that is that you can't fully know God. So it's like, even if you just want to like think about God as a category of all, of all of the best understandings of things, or basically just the objective knowledge of, of values, right? That's, that's one of the ways I would think about sort of philosophically defining God. It's just the objective values that you can't know. Do you tie yourself to some denomination? I mean, I grew up in evangelical circles. Okay, but that doesn't necessarily say anything. What was the specifics? What do you mean? Like, what, what are some of the things that eventually... So, like, I went to a Nazarene or? school, so I know what Nazarene means. You know what I mean? There are Catholic schools. Um, there are Baptists. Right. Okay, so, yeah, evangelicals are, 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 are Protestant. They're, they're like, specifically mm-hmm. focused, or they, they tend to gravitate towards the more woo-woo stuff in Christianity, a, a lot of, like, Holy Spirit, kind of this and that. Um, okay. So, I went to a Nazarene church, so most of my... Christian understanding was kind of formalized during my college year, not a Nazarene church, a Nazarene, um, sorry, I don't go to church, a Nazarene university. Um, so a lot of my understanding was through that lens. And this is sort of a critique, which is similar to yours. You know, Christians often get so lost in um, the debates between themselves that they miss the kind of the bigger picture, which maybe that's what you're critiquing is the deconstruction of it all. Because at the end of the day, like for me and what I think the Nazarenes embody fairly well is like, it ain't our place to judge. We have certain rules, but some rules are kind of old fashioned and they don't work. Like they're not compatible with what we, what Christians say that we should do. Right. Um, because when you, when you apply them, it's actually very anti-Christian. And, you know, I'm sure part of that was also a combination of the fact that, you know, I'm in California and Californians think in a particular way. But in the same token, nobody real, nobody there who actually believed in the faith could ever accept subjective, uh, subjectivity because, at the, because you can't operate really on any level from a subjective lens. It doesn't work because then what you're saying is the person who thinks that I should die for my belief has validity. And it's kind of like that. Right. You might be on the wrong side of it, but that can't be true. Somebody has to be wrong if someone thinks the other person needs to die for something. Right. And that that's sort of, I mean, the, the problem of, I mean, if you push it to its end, that's essentially nihilism. But I mean, that's the problem of, of the postmodern experiment is just like, okay, if every view is equally valid, then then there's there's no cohesive truth that exists. If every view is equally valid, then no views are valid. Right. <laughs> exactly. I mean, be, if everyone's super, it all no one zeroes is. out. Um, which, which does, yeah, it just doesn't work. And I guess to pull, yeah, you pull it back to politics, and that's sort of what's going on. There's, there's a group of people who think that every view is somewhat valid, um, and they're trying to entertain them all. And you know, I look at it and I see them imploding, but they seem to be gaining power. So, 
what do I know? Um, and then there's another group that holds some sort of underlying truth and they just disagree about how to apply said truth or how to apply it. So they kind of implode from within as well. And then you remove the religious tendency of people to kind of self-segregate outside of these political circles. And so now this is their primary mode of philosophical thinking on any level. And what we have is this system that fundamentally doesn't work because we've abandoned religion as a culture Whatever that means, you know, when I say religion, I want the listener to understand I'm not specifically talking about, you know, Islam or Judaism or Christianity or any of that. It's just a higher mode of thought that connects you with everybody else. Politics does not do that. It inherently does not do that. Um, and I don't know. We, we have to find something to kind of reconnect it because I'm not religious the four years of which I was in a religious institution were some of the most fulfilling, thoughtful, growthful years of my life. So you're just saying was, that like people who have that sort of a, a sense of an objective meaning act differently or they have in your life? Yes, absolutely. If you operate in subjectivity and everything is valid to you, which even then it usually isn't because there's some line, uh, again, politically it's right versus left. The right is not valid in the subjectivity mindset of, from the left. Um, but if you operate in, if you operate towards a truth, even if that truth is as basic as don't kill other people, it affects every decision you make. And oftentimes, it, it, in my experience, it makes better people. People who operate on some sort of truth actually tend to be more respectful, oddly enough. Say that again. People because who... there's an end goal. Go ahead. No, say that, say that one more time. People who have... People who have some sort of objective truth that they're striving towards tend to be more respectful, oddly enough. At least in my experience. Before you said even a goal like just don't kill people seems... Even Seems a goal, like, like, yeah, even if it's just like something that should be a duh to everybody. Don't kill people. If, I, if I mean, that doesn't have... actually feel like a duh to me. Oh, okay. Let's flesh that out. <laughs> so I think the convenience of not having to kill people or uh, like, I, I think that's sort of a, um, that's a, that's a luxury of a, of a, of a system that has plenty of room for for error or, or like a very stable system. I think that Yes. I, I think that's an Go ideal ahead. that we should that we should aim at. I, I think it's if I, I think I, I like I like Peterson's uh minimum necessary force principle. I, I don't think that, that means that there are not situations where the necessary amount of force is not death. Like I, I just I don't think that that's the case. I think there are times. Let me where... clarify my let me clarify my statement. So speaking from a lens of somebody within this, well, was a really stable system. It should be clear to every American that absent extraordinary circumstances, it is not appropriate to kill somebody over petty disagreements. Right, and this well, is something I... that. People don't feel like these, the, the disagreements that they're, I mean, if you're willing to kill somebody, you are deeply convinced that that's not a petty disagreement. I mean, I, I guess there's some people that are, 
I don't know, e- even people who who seem who who would just kill people just sort of for fun. It's like it's. I think that's probably a bad way of understanding it. I don't think there's people that are killing people for fun because they literally just think it's fun. It's like there's there's a they've they've got there philosophically where they think life is meaningless and they, and they that that's sort of a serious belief. Yeah, some yeah you you caught me in a circle and I'm trying to get myself out of the circle. <laughs> um, God, I I should have woke up an hour sooner. Uh, well. Okay. Keep fleshing it out. Maybe maybe I'll get somewhere with this. Or maybe I'm just stuck. Well, we're we're talking about sub- subjective values versus objective values. I, I I think that's that circles around the the bottom of the problem and it's I I think you need to act as if there's an ob- objective perspective. The useful lie. And as if there is Well, no, I I don't think that you're even you necessarily have to lie. I think that you can act as if there is an objective perspective and that you don't have full access to it and that you need to sort of do your best to try to discover any amount of it that you can. And part of that is, is you know, having conversations with people and things like that. Well, I think part of it too is that there's not enough humility. Maybe I just picked the wrong value. There's not enough humility, right? So let's pretend that everything is a binary choice, which already I lose, but... Let's pretend everything is binary. Yes versus no. You know what I mean? Every situation in your life, there's a right and there's a wrong. And obviously, we don't have the metric. Um, It's not obvious to us what the metric is. And we can't check our answers. So the chances that you get any one particular answer right, 50-50. Even if, you know what, let's say that that the truth is somewhat evident and apparent. Let's say that the chances you get something right are 90 and the chances you get it wrong are 10. Right. Well, you figure, you know, you only have one ch- one choice in life. The chances that you're that you're good, that you're following the metric, ninety percent. By the time you have ten choices in your life, and this is normally like the end of somebody's morning routine, the chances you got everything right are already pretty bad. Right, because you have point nine times point nine times point nine times point nine. By the time you go through an entire day, the chances that you got everything right are basically zero. So then the chances that you have everything right from a social, political, um, or even just person, personal point of view is zero. But too many people don't understand this concept, and they think that they hold the keys to the truth of the universe, and that if only if they were allowed to run the system, to, to run the game show, that everybody would enjoy the game. And it's just not true because... The chances that you got it all, you don't. Yes, yeah, right? so too how, many people operate as if they do. How do you find? This seems to be like I, I always just get to like, oh well, you just need to figure out how to balance between the two or something like that. But that almost just feels like a platitude at this point. How do, how do you actually engage with that process of like being sort of convinced that you? I mean, being. In order to act, in order to do things, you need to be convinced enough that your perspective is correct, that you're willing to take it seriously. But in order to not be insane, in order to to not consistently do terrible things and never improve your behavior, you need to be willing to admit that you might be wrong. <laughs> right. So, again, I'm political, and I apologize to your listeners for always bringing it back because I know it turns people off. But here's how I engage with political stuff. I have my beliefs. I'm pretty damn sure I'm right. 
But when I go into a political discussion, I don't assume that I'm right. I am convicted, and I have my convictions. But at the end of the day, this could be – I know that there are things I have to have wrong because the chances that I have everything right are zero. The chances I have even half of it right are still zero, but that's a different point. Um, so then I assume every conversation is a conversation in which I may be wrong to at least hear the other side and let them challenge my point of view. Um, and I think that's ultimately, it, it's always, it's, it's never humble to say you're being humble, but I, I think it's some, it's a humble thing you can do, you know, when you're having tough conversations is to assume that the, you might be wrong and hear it out, but both parties have to do that. And what I see is that neither party is doing that right now yeah. by and large. Right. I mean, um, you look at the MAGA crowd, uh, they, they are convicted. They are, they, they know they're right. They, they, they have the moral high ground. Um, and you know, you look at everyone to the left of MAGA crowd and you know, within their different sects that everybody holds the same opinion. I hold the keys to the universe. I don't think I hold the keys to the universe. I think I hold a, a couple of the keys to the universe. And frankly, the reason why I align myself one way or the other is because I think the most important keys are the ones that I hold, which is, uh, uh, you know, it's an arrogant statement to state, but it is what it is. Arrogant sounding, I should say. Um, but you still have to be able to accept maybe I'm wrong because I don't know what I'm right in. I don't know what I'm wrong in. I feel like I'm right in everything, but that can't be true. So I should give people the time of the day on everything. Yeah. You know what I mean? And even I think to push it further is that you don't even, it doesn't even have to be as simple as just being right. Like to kind of try to s redeem the, the postmodern uh, or what seems obviously wrong with it is that having a different perspective on what is important isn't even necessarily wrong. There can be, there can even, I think that's even impossible for there to be mutually exclusive, um, pictures of what is right and what is wrong or what is valuable and what is not that are actually both equally correct, which that that's, that's where it, it's just because if, if you view, if you think of reality as being multidimensional in that way, then, well, I mean, okay. The, the, the analogy I'm thinking about it from is just, okay, you can have two, uh, two views you can, you, we could be in different rooms looking at, at different things. I mean, this is the simplest way of thinking about it. It's just, okay, we both can have fairly accurate views. I mean, our eyesight isn't perfect, but we're both just looking at different things and our views about those things and what's valuable to do in those rooms is going to be very different depending on how different the rooms are that we're in. But I, 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 I see, I see a, uh, a little sneer. Like it. it doesn't work. Okay. What do you want the, to do? The room. The rooms are still in a house or in an apartment or in a building. I guess in a building would be better. The rooms are in a building. The building's on the earth. The earth is the same. We're all in the same room. Um, it do, it doesn't work because if you have different, if you're saying that different points of view can can be valid, but we still don't hold the keys to understanding which rooms are valid and which rooms are not. Because there are some rooms that are invalid. Um, if, if you know, wait, whether rooms I don't are valid. Care what okay. kink your I, listener is into? If you, if you're if we're in a satanic temple where we're murdering people for sacrifice because of some weird kink, that's not a valid room. I refuse to acknowledge that. 
You know what I mean? So it at some point there has okay, to be the, an the, end the, conclusion. The fact is that we aren't in the same like I mean physically we're not in the same rooms and after we're done recording this thing you're going to go do something different than I am. You're going to stand up and you're going to turn left or you're going to turn right and I'm going to like even just traversing the room there's different modes of action that are going to work and that are going to be useful that are going to be meaningful for interacting with that space. But our rooms are still connected by something greater than themselves. Right. So, yes, yeah, so there are there are truths that are sort of more universal, but then there are also truths that are more subjective or that are more, yeah, more have to do with an individual situation. That's kind of what I'm trying to point to is that, like, there actually might be things that are sort of more, like you said, you have certain keys to the universe that you feel like are, are the most important. They might just be keys to your city or to your local co community and it's important for you to value those because there's something that you need to do in your situation that's valuable for you to do, but it's like it's not necessarily similarly valuable for everybody else to focus on those things. I must take a step away from politics and maybe paint this differently to try and get at what I'm getting at because my I'm really struggling to articulate well here. I under like I understand why that statement sounds nice, but it can't be true because then you if we look at the way the universe actually works, there are fundamental laws that cannot be broken as far as we're concerned. And you know, there are laws on tarp on top of these laws. You know, there are theories that are built on top of these laws. Some of them have playroom, some of them don't. But at the end of the day, everything can tie itself to atomic laws throughout the entirety of the universe. Science and the way the universe works has a fundamental truth. I think it is naive to believe that the same framework does not apply to things like morality. There has to be a thread that connects everything together because that is how the universe works. So without this to, to pretend that such a thread doesn't exist, which is what subjectivity essentially does, in my opinion, is to allow yourself to ignore the rules, because there has to be some, even if they're not apparent to us. And then if we don't operate with, like if the, if the universe didn't operate the same throughout, it couldn't possibly exist, right? Because how, how do you, you, you can't have, well, I mean, I guess, you know, I'm going to venture into something I don't know a ton about, but like, there's a reason antimatter and matter don't get along. Right? Because shit happens. Shit that I don't understand happens that happens. But there's still a fundamental rule that kind of played, a, that picked a winner here. And maybe that rule was simply chance. I don't know. Um, but at the end of the day, there was still something at the very end of the line of logic that decided what was right, what was wrong, or decided what existed, what didn't, or decided the way objects interact with each other, that decided gravity, that decided all these different things, right? Why do we assume that that wouldn't be true in our moral systems? Which now I'm getting dangerously close to sounding like a materialist, but... Yeah, well, that's, I was just going to point to is that I, 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 I think I disagree with you all the way down because I, I, I think even when it comes to supposedly closed systems like math, there's... I, I was recently, and I'm not... I don't know much about math. I, could all, I, could, I, could, I definitely could not understand the theorem, but I was just watching some, like, 
really surface level um, explanation videos about Gödel's um, incompleteness theorems, which there are two, and I, let me see if I can remember them. But I, I think he said basically any system, I mean, bet between the two theorems, it's like any, any system is either complete and, and inconsistent or in, incomplete and consistent. So maybe that's too, too abstract, but going down to, um, he said everything can kind of come just down to like particular rules and laws that atoms follow. I don't think that's even the case as far as the very, very surface level little that I know about, about physics and about atoms and, and, and about that sort of thing is, is any of those sciences, uh, don't even have, um, at least it's not possible to prove that there's a certain um, laws that are that are followed sort of all the time. There's always kind of a breaking point if you push something to the very end. Uh, I, I think you're misconstruing knowledge with truth. We don't know, like when we get really deep into it, when we get into some of this quantum level stuff, we don't know the rules, but the rules are still there. Just because we don't understand them doesn't mean they don't exist. Because at the end of the day, well, I, I think I to call like, them rules might might be the error. Is I think that there's there's a way in which they're they're operating, but I think to call it a rule, it's I, I think that's a fundamentally different way of thinking about it. And it, it's it's like trying to 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 square a circle, or it's like you know trying to if if there's a rule then you could write it down eventually and eventually we could exhaust we could figure out all yeah. the rules of the universe but i i, I think I, that I the think universe works different i think the universe works differently than that i, I, I don't, don't think so if i throw my glasses at my laptop i know what's going to happen <laughs> I, yeah there's I, I i may not know what direction every, the bounce I mean, is going to be but i know what's going to happen i, I think the difference is just a, there's there's probabilistic statements you can say where it's like okay the probability of that happening is so high you can say you know it and i, I think that's that's this the nature of any sort of knowledge you said that there's a difference between knowledge and but it doesn't matter how hard i throw my glasses they're not going to hit you you're safe in your chair there has to be some truth in there because to say that there's a chance that there are pro that even if the probability is so high, that's to suggest that if I throw these glasses hard enough, they're going to mesh with the screen, travel through the electrical currents that are somehow connecting you and I in this conversation, come out your screen and just go right into your eye. Like I, it's that isn't going to happen. I mean, that's easy to point to as a, as an absurd impossibility, but the. the I mean, I agree that it's not going to happen. Mean that there are rules. No, but as I'm saying, is I, I don't think that that impossibilities exist. Uh, I think that's too fundamental of a disagreement to where I can't even like, <laughs> articulate. I mean, yeah, like so. So we mutually negotiate. Okay, that that that's that's not going to happen. We both just agree there, so that we we come to a to an understanding, or, or at least with, within the the mutual uh, understanding we have of of the world, we agree that that's not going to happen. I might personally have feelings that like, okay, well, it could happen under I don't know some some strange circumstance that I can't understand, but it's like that that's not the the rules we're going to play by within this conversation. So we, we've we've negotiated a, a set of rules for for talking about reality that we're gonna 
abide by within this conversation. Well, then we don't agree. If you're if you're still suggesting that there's something else, the notion that we even agree is not really fair. Because no, well, it's too fundamental. When we we decide to play a board game, it's like we don't necessarily both agree that that's the you know the that getting a checkmate actually means like objectively that I've won. It's like we're mutually choosing to subject ourselves to a set of rules that may be sort of arbitrary or it's like we, we both think that there's something beyond arbitrariness to those rules it's like okay there's something that makes this game meaningful or fun or like we're connecting to something deeper by playing chess this way so we both decide to just take that as a given take those as, as sort of axioms we don't fully understand you know but we're, we're agreeing to enter into those rules we're right well, I, th- I think when I don't think you can compare it to a chess game. I think you got to think of it more like the moving, the, like the interaction when the chess piece hits the board. I think you're too high up, right? So the the physical material of a chess piece touching a board still adheres to rules. We know this because we don't have any examples of the piece disappearing when it touches the board. feel like i i i have my disagreement is is, stumped (laughs) (laughs) i feel like most of my belief that's counter to this is is sort of intuitive and i should have some better examples to kind of point to but i mean i think you're being too abstract i think i think when we get to like morality or something like that there are so many different interactions at play that we just don't understand how they all intermingle um, but I still think that when you reduce it all down to their very simplest parts, which means they're no longer playing with each other, we, we, we are well on the path to materialism based on the tools that science has provided us. And to the really smart person in the audience who says, that's because I can only measure materialistic thought, shut up. <laughs> Until we can see it do something else, I'm not sure you can get out of that statement. Well, th- th- then this seems to be very counter to your initial statement about like feeling, or at least uh, you're not arguing logically that we need religion. You're you're saying you have you're kind of more pointing to a, a sense of okay, it feels like we need religion, but that, I'm saying that that's a different sort of argument. That's 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 a, that's a sort of a experience. It's, it's a feeling based argument. It's an axiom based well, argument where it's, it's not like. I feel like what we're arguing for right here is this sort of value that isn't based on materialism or that isn't based on being able to, isn't based on sort of rules. It's based on sort of like an aesthetic direction towards what seems to be good. Well, I mean, I think at the end of the day, when you have so many interactions piled up, you're kind of, you're, you're guessing. And that's what we are. At the end of the day, when it comes to morality, because morality is, let me put it this way. We don't understand how Two atoms seem to interact because, you know, between like a a chess piece and the chess piece touching the board, right? That is already a system that is so complex that is beyond our understanding. So, like, if you take that out to its logical conclusion, our feelings are guesses, and they're like really crappy guesses at best. Like, your, your criticism is fair, and I've thought that, thought of it, but that doesn't mean that there isn't still somewhere a fundamental truth which ultimately, that's what religion is really getting at, 
right? Religion, there are different religions who, that believe in different fundamental truths. But practicers, true practicers of, say, Christianity, believe in a fundamental truth, and perhaps, you know, their best described in the Ten Commandments. I don't know. Pick your pick your part of the Bible you find most important. And as long as you strive towards that sort of truth, the world will be, become better for you. But the, the difference, though, you know is I mean? that if you describe it as a system or a set of laws or a set of rules that if we could just kind of understand it, then we would get there, that's ignoring one of the other fundamental assumptions of of religious thinking, and that is that the gods or God or that understanding or, or, or calling it a system assumes that we could get there or that we, we could eventually solve the riddle. But the, the assumption of religion is that it's actually impossible to get there. And that like that, that you can't see the face of God and live, or you can't understand God's mind. It's eternally, um, it eternally transcends your understanding, which I, I think is to say that it's, it's not like we can develop systems for trying to understand it, but we can't actually fully, we, we can't get it. And, and, I mean, I, I, okay, I think I might have a, a better analogy for this. Is and We're both super confused and I almost feel bad for the listener. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. We're struggling with something we are not qualified to talk about. <laughs> the difference between analog and digital audio. Are you familiar with, with the distinction there? I mean, yes, but I, I don't know if this is going to work. I, I, I'm pretty sure it's going to, or at least it's it's going right. to communicate what I'm thinking about this anyways. All right. So. <laughs> and he immediately runs into a roadblock. No, 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 no. This is, this is good. Okay. So analog waveforms are sort of like, you know, functions you, you can, you can always zoom in deeper and, and find, okay, let, let me, let me first just explain how, how, digital audio works and, and the difference between it and analog. Okay. So a sample rate when it comes to digital audio is like how many times you check the amplitude of the waveforms per second. Okay. So 44,000 uh, kilohertz. That's it's checking exactly how loud the, the wave in the air, that energy wave is 44,000 times per second. And that's to the human ear, pretty indistinguishable from just being as accurate as it would need to be in order to, to communicate exactly what the wave is doing. But the point is just that you can always, you can continue to make that number of samples higher and higher and higher and try to break down the moment and know exactly where the wave is. And you're going to continue to find more data. It's not, you're not going to reach a tipping point where you've, you, you've figured out the pixel depth of reality and you've, you've sampled yes, every you possible moment. Yes, you will. I mean, you're, you're talking about like a plank length or, a, or like the speed of, of like there's there's the smallest possible unit of time to you yes okay well, and even a small possible unit of uh i i don't know what the the physics term is but there is see i'm not well qualified on on talking talking physics that's not my expertise <laughs> there is some sort of well okay the speed of light right we know that is sort of a, a boundary right on the on the top end, on the bottom end, there is a boundary, and it's based on some sort of sub subatomic structure that I don't know the name of because I'm biologically trained and more recently legally trained and not physically trained. Um, but there is a subatomic piece that you cannot get any smaller. So there I, is a lower. From my boundary. understanding, I, I recently watched some 
again, I, I watch a lot of short little educational videos to try to understand concepts, to try to fit them all together in my mind. And, I, and as far as I understand, okay, the smallest unit of distance, the smallest unit of time. Okay, it was the smallest unit of distance, but there's there's no smallest unit. Uh, it, the way these things are described is that the, the smallest meaningful uh, distance or smallest meaningful size or smallest meaningful unit of time. But that's only, again, for meaning relates to what you're trying to do with it. I don't think there's anybody who, who, who actually claims that there's, there's a small, like there, there's, again, there's like a pixel depth of reality. There's, there's the highest resolution possible to go. Pretty sure Veritasium just did a video on this. Well, we should probably like, go watch that video two or then. Three weeks. <laughs> I, uh, I, I, maybe, I feel like maybe this, with CDP Gray. I feel like the point that they're going to get to when they go to that definition, though, is to say this is the smallest meaningful distance or the smallest meaningful size. It's going to relate to meaning, which is which relates to, to doing some particular type of science or particular type of engineering. It doesn't relate to sort of reality or or actual, like. I, I was another friend was talking to me about this concept earlier this week, and he was talking about he was reading some philosopher saying, okay, you know, if if there's the smallest possible unit of time, then that means that all the time that's taking place in between those smallest units, the universe is sort of flashing in and out of existence. <laughs> like in, in the Maybe same way is. that, I mean, I, that that would that would be where you would have to head if 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 that's what you believe. I think. I'm going to try and pull us out of this really complicated <laughs> hole I don't know what to do with. I think regardless of whether or not you believe in God, we operate in some sort of physical space that is dictated by some sort of law that relates to time. And I hope that's apparent. Obviously, this physical space has to have physical limitations. And these physical limitations are probably going to be the rules that dictate how all other physicality interacts with itself. So, we don't understand those rules. I think maybe that's the problem is that yeah, we, I, I, I could, we could sort of get to that conclusion. I mean, again, okay, so, you and I are, so are coming from get... different axioms. Of, I, I don't think you can actually get there, and you just think we aren't there yet. But at, if we can at least agree and say, okay, we both recognize that we don't have access to that, I just think we'll never get there. But if we both at least agree that we're not there, then we both have that sort of mutual respect and humility to say, okay. But there exists. So we do agree there exists. I mean, it's it's a very philosophical statement. I don't know. I, 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 I think there might be some ways of getting there, but I can't comprehend it. Well, okay. But, but, but there exists. That's what I'm asking. I'm not asking if we're going to get there, but there exists. The, the fundamental something about the way the universe works, you can see it existing, even yeah. if somehow you we, we, we you tend to break it. math whenever we do anything in real life. I, I, another, I was watching Vsauce's video about this idea and, and about super tasks, which is like the idea that it, you can continue again, it goes back down to the same philosophical rabbit hole of, of just breaking things into smaller bits for infinity and you, and there's no end to that. Like there's, there's this really, there has to be an end though. There's a, there's a really old, um, philosophy problem. I, I forget who's, who's the one who came up with it, but it's like this little story about Achilles and it's like, he, he has to complete an impossible race where he has to, you know, he has to run 10 meters and it's like, that's, that's not impossible. But he says, yeah, well it's, it's impossible though, because in order to get there, he's going to have to run half of the way there. 
And then after that, he's going to have to run half of the remainder. And then he's going to have to rem- run half of, uh, half of the distance that's left. And he's going to have to keep doing that. He's going to continue to, if you keep on halving the distance that he, that he has to run, he's never going to reach there. He's just always going to in- infinitely approach the finish line. But somehow he manages to get to the finish line. It just means that you have a bad rule because you don't understand the fundamentals. Um, well, I mean, it, 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 again, if if you presume that there's an end, there, there, there's a there's a level of distance that you can't cut in half anymore, then then you've solved the problem. But that's, I don't know. But that, we that, know for a fact that that has to exist because not only does he cross the finish line, like not only does he get to the finish line, he crosses it. He goes beyond it. Because the the metrics were they were they basically were well so that's that I think that's kind of what I'm saying is that somehow action transcends the mathematical systemic way of thinking about it and I know that's a very vague weird statement and I don't really know exactly what I mean by it either but that that that's that's what I'm munching on in my brain right now trying to trying to comprehend all right well then I, I guess I'll just explain then what I'm thinking. And accept that you're not gonna buy it. But <laughs> okay, go for it. To, okay, so there's there has to be some fundamental level of which matter operates within itself, even if we don't understand it. And since that there is going to be some sort of truth in which matter operates, and we don't understand it, there has to be some sort of truth to the universe, and part of that truth to the universe is going to ultimately be morality. Now. If we're never going to get to the first step of understanding how stuff interacts with each other, we're never going to get to morality. And I don't even think we're going to get to morality anyway because, you know, we're way too complex of creatures. But if there is this fundamental truth of reality that kind of, not condescends, that coalesces into eventual morality, then the whole notion that everything is valid has to be logically false. Right. Because not everything is valid because there's still a lower boundary and probably some sort of upper boundary to how the universe works. And I don't understand how we could create a system being beings within the universe that transcends the limits of the universe. Does that make sense, or do I? Need Everything to made sense it? up in, up until the last point, as far as making a system that transcends the limits of the universe. We, but, we we can't create a moral system that operates outside of the bounds of the limit, the universe. And the fact that the universe has bounds in the first place means that there are going to be some thoughts that are wrong. Okay, I, I want to jump back to two points just to get to the the more more digestible idea because I, I think we, we can get stuck on the infinity of the universe for a while and, and we're going to run circles around that because I, I just, I believe that there aren't bounds on the universe and there aren't bounds on truth and, and, and all these things. Um, but when it comes to, you know, you said so, the postmodernist might want to say all perspectives are equally valid and the counter perspective might be, no, there's only one valid perspective. Whereas my, uh, my view is somewhere in between the two where it's, I, I think that there are, there are different perspectives that are equally valid that don't seem to agree. And they might be perceiving different, different aspects of reality or looking at reality from different perspectives and then, you know, creating a, a perspective that, 
isn't irreconcilable from another perspective. Uh, so it, I, I think that there, there, there can be multiple, multiple, uh, valid perspectives at once that don't agree, but I don't think that all perspectives are equally valid. I think there's still a hierarchy there. So I'm not, I'm not going into either one of these positions of just all perspectives are valid or there's only one valid perspective. I think that there are value, there are valid perspectives that are not easy to, to make sense of and, and, I don't think there's one particular valid perspective that, that can see it all either. Or, or at least I, I kind of think about that that perspective uh, being something that's unattainable or then that, that's part of, again, philosophically yeah, why, why God is we, necessary. We've been for on different tracks this entire time. Uh, okay, so let's work with what you got there. So <laughs> some, are, some perspectives are valid, but that insinuates that there are some that are invalid. Right. Correct? Yes. How do you know the difference? That that's therein lies the problem, and so I I, I think partially I, I think you have to try to run that that game, run that problem on every level of hardware that you have, and I think it's a mistake to think that the individual is the only piece of hardware that you're running. You're you're not able. You, you don't just have to kind of figure. I mean that that's kind of to the go back to the the hyper subjective position is just to say well the only way of navigating value and, and navigating truth is just to kind of run it through your own perception of truth and it doesn't seem true to you it doesn't i work. don't think that doesn't work and i think to go and say again there's only one perspective that's valid and and to go up way way too high of a, of a software and, and to just kind of assume that the only way of of perceiving or, or negotiating this is just through through an almost government level so a, a national level is like you just let let that existence of consciousness process what's good and evil that doesn't work either doesn't work right so i i think the difference is just is multiple levels of running this problem and connecting them even so they're they're all going to come up with probably slightly different perspectives on on truth and on value and we need to kind of do our best to interrelate them i i just so want to I, make it a point make a point to say that like you you are doing a great job of making somebody who knows he he is smart feel really fucking stupid <laughs> um well, ho hopefully we we could both feel stupid enough to get, to get some humility going here. <laughs> um, so you, you brought as far it back as to actually government doing that. And, oh, sorry, huh? no. I didn't, Ask I your question. I guess I, I'm I, I'm just kind of spitballing, or, or I'm just processing this idea because this is this is the idea I've been trying to process for the past several months. But I, I don't even know if it's it, it seems like a really good idea to me, but maybe I'm way off course. <laughs> What's the idea? <laughs> well, that somehow, so I mean the actual action that I think we need to, I, th I think the right way to respond to my way of, of seeing this problem is that, okay, we can't figure out what's, what's valuable or what's true just from any individual perspective. We can't figure it out from too abstract of a sort of a national perspective. Any one of those things when isolated gives us bad results. And so what we can actually do is think about it individually and then think about it in terms of relationship with one other person, and then in terms of maybe a slightly larger group, like maybe a family-sized group, and see how how that perspective, uh, uh, or what what sort of values and what sort of perception of truth that system pumps out, and then the next level up, and the next level up, and and don't put all of our again. I, I've used this silly analogy so many times in this conversation, just talking about putting eggs in a basket. I don't know why why that's the one that's coming to me, but if we put all of our eggs concerning truth in any one of those baskets we, we get we get bad results but if we can somehow figure out how to keep those systems 
in a good faith relationship with each other, then I think we have a better chance at, at, at approaching objective values. Okay. So I'm going to pivot. I wish I thought of this an hour ago because we would have saved both of us a lot of time. <laughs> um, so with, I think this is something that the liberal arts schools have sort of kind of figured out what you're getting at because the whole problem, and that we we alluded to this earlier with, you know, different bubbles touching each other, and now the main bubble is being politics. Imagine if you go to school and you only learn one thing and you look at everything through that one lens, right? Which is basically what we're doing in our political systems. Uh, we, we go to we go learn our one subject and that's it. Liberal arts schools make you take general education courses to kind of diversify your modes of thought so that you understand issues from multiple points of view uh, to hopefully actually get at some larger truth, right? That's why people who go and study biology don't just learn biology. They also learn um, about writing right. and English and, you know, foreign languages and philosophy and at the school that I went to, even down to Christianity because it was Christian school. So, and the whole point of doing this was to, you know, create a, a well-rounded individual is often the term that was thrown out. And what that really means is that you're able to tackle, you're able to look at systems that you don't understand that still kind of produce results, right? And I think the issue that we've had reducing everything down to politics is that we've sort of thrown out the results of some of these systems because we as humans have already created systems that produce outputs that are not only larger than the individual output but they're also larger than the national output because they transcend nationality. You know, history is something not enough people learn. Mm. And history is an imperfect but good tool to understand where many of our uh, philosophical and political tendencies lead us. Mm -hmm. We know for the more... even further than that, like mythology. (laughs) Yes, but I, I, the point is that there's multiple different systems at play right. here, and we're and we're disregarding them. We're going to school for only one subject, and that right. subject is politics. And not only that, but we're specializing in a particular form of politics because we're our goal is to essentially create some sort of utopia on Earth, and we're doing this without any regards to other systems that tell us that our means of thinking are wrong. We know this is wrong, and if you study history, even on a superficial level. You know, you would know you were wrong because if you take the peer, okay, I won't pick on Marxists first. I should pick on my side first. If you take the peer capitalistic approach all the way through, you kind of get this Dutch-like system where there are a couple families at the top supporting the entire system all the way down. If you don't know what I'm talking about, don't spout off in the comments um, and Learn how the Dutch capitalism seems to have worked at the end of the term. You have a couple of families who divert money down through one heir so they never lose the material wealth. So then the Dutch system has high taxes on these few families to make sure that everybody else has a place to live. It's actually kind of oddly communist, but it's still (laughs) capitalism taking. You kind of get into like a horseshoe theory of if you let either one goes too far in any, you you just get that same system, which you could call it extremist capitalism or extremist uh, communism. It, it doesn't well, really matter. It's just extremism. But yeah, I, I do actually kind of, this is an aside. I do think the two, like communism versus capitalism debate, I think was A, inevitable, um, and B, you, you cannot have one without the other. When one takes power, the other is going to rise. And then when it takes power, the other one's going to come back. Um, and again, history seems to be what tells us this, right? So you 
if you take the Marxist approach and you take it to its logical conclusion that it, it doesn't ever go towards utopia, neither does capitalism. Um, we can never achieve utopia. We can only strive for it. And we're trying to achieve it, which is there's a small but important nuance in there. And you take it to its logical conclusion, you get the USSR. You get China prior to its embrace of capitalism. We know that every time these systems have been tried out, the end results may not be exactly the same, but they're very close. Whether that be capitalism, whether that be communism, whether that be overtly religious, non-religious, purely nationalistic, not nationalistic at all. There seems to be common threads and all these different things. And we're choosing to ignore these common threads because we've made up some sort of other reason for why, say, history isn't important. Uh, there's the, again, like I think the common history critique is that history is always written by the victors. You don't actually know if the other side would have worked. But the problem with that logic is that it assumes that there's only been one line of victors, and that isn't true. There's different stories. You, you, you can read different histories and you can read different countries. But history ultimately is still, you, you can't, you can argue that say an American lens of history is going to, you know, embolden things that America agrees with. But at the right. end of the day, there are parts of history that America would like that were destroyed and that are forever lost right. by the victors of their time. Right. We don't know what was lost in the burning of the Library of Alexandria. We just don't know. Yeah. Which inherently means we lost parts that we like and lost parts we don't. So then even though we still have at the, at the very end of the tunnel an American or a Russian or a Canadian or a French or a Chinese lens of history, there's still going to be common threads that teach us the way of our system regardless of what the very last person in the line is telling us. I'm going to let you bounce off of your thoughts there because <laughs> I don't know where to take the plane. No, I, I think, well, let, let me see if I, I can get you to kind of wrap that up then. Cause I, I, I think we've, we've been going for a while anyways. Um, I, it, bring that down to the practical sphere. So we, okay. you know, we, we can't know, we can't know this stuff. I mean, I, I feel like you, you kind of fell into my little my category of, you said we can't, we can't actually get there, but we have to strive for it. Right. We, we, okay. We kind of did. My point is, is that we have to be able to look at fields outside of the field in which we're operating in for answers. And I think we often get lost so much in the present that we forget that there's a whole history behind us. And perhaps history is just a good term for everything that precedes us. And we don't look to it well enough. Prior to this weird political landscape we exist in now, people held common belief structures on some level. And even while there were different sects, because you can't point to religion because there've always been non-religious people and there've always been people of different religions. But at the end of the day, there was a sort of underlying agreement that we could all exist in the same country on some level, right? In the U S context, we are so focused on looking forward and looking at the present and how bad things are now. And we selectively choose, you know, the history that we want to do and ignore the history that we, that makes our ideas look as bad that we sort of lose track that there are tools available to us that would be better suited to help us through these problems. So perhaps not everybody needs to go to church, but everybody needs to open a book. Everyone needs to go to a book club that talks about, you know, different forms of 
how humanity has previously operated. Right. Now I'm really starting to sound Confucian. Go, um, go, go and expose yourself to other perspectives, at least. We need to find a way to not only expose ourselves to other perspectives, but to expose ourselves to the common threads of how others have handled the problem that we're in. Yeah. And before people turn to things like religion, you know, when you had an issue of what to do with an authoritarian boss, you could point to the Bible and there would be something about how you're supposed to honor your earthly king because at the end of the day, the bad that he will do to you is not worth losing God. You know what I mean? Like, I'm forgetting the exact analogy that's in the Bible, but or there's give unto Caesar sort of, what is Caesar's. Yeah, is that what something you're along about? those lines. I think so. So we need to find a common thread. And I think the tools already exist. We're choosing to ignore them. Well, so what are I mean, you personally, I, I mean, you're, you're thinking about this now, you're, you're processing a problem that you, you see in the West. What are you, have you convinced yourself to do anything? So, I mean, yes. And I think studying history is where most people should start now that I'm finally awake enough to do this. The thing, so when I was growing up, I was a conservative because my family was conservative, right? And when you take, and you can't operate like that. And now, I mean, I'm still a conservative. I'm still right-leaning. I'm, I'm still... I'm going to vote for the R more likely than not. Um, not because I agree with everything they're saying, but because they align more with my values. However, I also understand as a conservative where my point of view, where my line of reasoning, where my side goes wrong, because I have studied enough history to know that some of these tropes that people want to embrace, nationalism is a great example modernly, where it goes wrong. And when it goes wrong. And I think we're closer to that line than they want to admit. But I also have, you know, I'm not naive and there is other points of view. You need to read, you need to learn about the other side, not just in the modern sense, but in the past sense. How many conservatives can honestly say they've read the Communist Manifesto? I don't think that that answer is very high. They've just been told their whole life communism bad. I actually have an episode of Just Think, which is a dead podcast and you can't get it publicly, um, but privately it still exists. And one day I should maybe re-release it on Contrarics, um, where I basically go through the basic tenets of Marxism with the goal of tearing it to shreds. And at the end of the episode, I kind of go, well, they got some good points. <laughs> and I'm not sure I can reconcile. And that exists within every philosophy. Right. There, you know, every mode of belief has some kernel of truth. Um, and this goes all the way down from Christianity to even subjectivity to communism, every to even like Q. Like every single mode of belief has a kernel of truth at least. Right. And if you understand and are willing to recognize these kernels of truth, you sort of start to see the ludicrousness of the current political climate. And I think that's really what we need. But part of being able to understand the kernel of truth is to be able to call out the rest of it. So I, you know, I've spent a lot of time, we were talking before we started recording about Clubhouse and I've spent a lot of time on Clubhouse recently and I'm a conservative, which means that I find myself and I self-segregate in the conservative circles. My side is nuts. Just as nuts as the nut, as the nuttiness of the sign that I see on the other side, on, whether it be on Twitter or Reddit or whatever, right? So, 
The problem is, is that we aren't willing as a collective group to criticize the group. I hear too many Republicans on these clubhouse accounts saying that we need to stop attacking each other and each other's modes of thoughts because the real enemy is the left, for example. And it's kind of like, well, yes, but no, because we are our own enemies as well. Because if the goal is to create a better system for everybody, not just for ourselves, then we need to be able to critique each other in, mm-hmm. in a system that is so ludicrous that it believes that a two-party system is appropriate. I know I'm bouncing all over the place, but it, it believes that a two-party system is appropriate. There's going to be disagreements within the parties because mm-hmm. every time I'm in a conservative room, I feel like the most liberal person in it. Mm-hmm. And frankly, when I see how my side goes wrong, I know that if you don't pull to the left a little... This is going to not only end badly for my co-patriots that are even to my left, but it's going to end badly for me. And that can't be correct. But we're not willing to have these conversations and we're not willing to use the tools that we have at our disposal because we're more interested in how we currently feel. Mm -hmm. I I think you hit on something important with that pointing out that some people are saying the real enemy is, is over there. It's like, I think this is a pretty Christian uh, idea is that, okay, no, the real enemy is always closer to home than you want to admit. But like, I mean, you might go down to say that the real enemy is right inside of you, but I mean, yeah, the real th- enemy is within. Right. And, and I think that that is true on every level of, of identity. The real enemy is when you're thinking about yourself, there's a real enemy that's inside of you. When you're thinking about your family, there's a real enemy inside of your family as well as outside of your family. When, there, when you're thinking about your political party, there's a real enemy inside of your party as well. And it's it probably more important for you to focus your attention on that, or at least spend most of your time focusing on your attention on that, because that's there's change you can actually make there. When you just point at somebody else and make fun of them, you give them you give them a get out of jail free card to to become that much more violent and that much more uh, entitled and and, and vict- view themselves as a victim and then lash out at you, right? If, if you right. if you point at your at somebody who means something to you and that you have mutual respect for and you say, you fucked up, that means something. It doesn't mean anything when somebody on the street just starts yelling at you. But when right. you're, you know, when your family member or your maybe your party member points to you and says, hey, this is a mistake, let's work on it. Especially if it's not out in public and they're not just shaming you, but they're, they're pointing at you. Like it, the, the extent of privacy that you're in, it, it, it tends to mean more too. It's like, okay, if just you and I are talking and nobody else is listening and I say, Hey man, this isn't cool. There's no other reason for me to say that other than, you know, I care about you. <laughs> right. Right. It's, it's not, it doesn't get me social points to say, Oh, Garrett, made, made a funny dig on, on Taylor about this dumb point that he made. It's like, there's, there, there's, I don't get any benefit from that other than it's, it's more like I'm taking a risk when, when I insult you privately because, you know, you're the only one there. The only response I could get might be a really, a really angry person. Right. Like, no, you got it. You, I think we got there. It took a long freaking time, <laughs> but I think we got there. That was, that was a deep dive, um, but I think we, yeah, we, I think we're surfacing. <laughs> Because the whole time we're just trying to we're trying to bring in other systems. The whole point is we need to look at things more than one way. And politics isn't yeah. it, Chief? Yeah. Um, which is more. And it's interesting. I don't want to like self plug um, and sound like plug I'm just yourself. Trying to tie this in this is a good plug. time to plug. But this is like 
a huge reason why I'm doing the show that I'm doing and I'm trying to do this, the speaking on Clubhouse that I'm doing. I, I, I often find that I'm usually not speaking to my political enemies. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I run a politics podcast. And so inherently it's like, oh, you're just trying to, you know, like beat on the left. And it's kind of like, no, I actually, most of the time I'm not beating on the left. My co-host, on the other hand, he, he he's ready to play that game. He wants to be a politician, so that makes sense. Um, <laughs> but oftentimes my critiques are actually of the right. And, and it's not because, you know, I think the right is more dangerous. I don't. Not in the current sphere. Not in the current environment. Um, I don't even think it's particularly close. However, I do think the right could be better. And that's why I come from where I come from because sure. the chances that especially like I'm a moderate, the chances that the extremes have it all right. The extremes don't even like work with themselves in the American system. Our extreme right is all about freedom of economics and constrained social liberties. That doesn't make any sense. And on the left, we have extreme social f- liberty and really constrained economics. The, the, our extremes don't make sense within themselves. Right. Um, so I, I tried to bring people towards the middle because the middle is more consistent. Hmm. And at the end of the day, it allows for more agreement because if, if you're going to say, if you're going to tie to any extreme economics or social liberty, when you go far enough, the end result has always been war which is what I was alluding to earlier. Actually, I think I said that directly earlier. And why I think we get lost in the political realm due to this nature of, I think, the right seeding from all other realms of dialogue, whether it be religious or culture or sports or whatever, is that people have gotten so lost in politics. Politics is inherently now, so that we only look at things from an inherently now point of view. We disregard all other realms of thought that allow us to think outside of the now. Which perhaps means that the most important things that conservatives need to get back into is education because education deals in the past, doesn't deal in the present. It can anyways. I mean, (laughs) it can be very propagandistic as well. I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Thanks for going down some rabbit holes with me, man. This, This is good. I appreciate it. Um, and I'm happy to come on anytime. This was a lot of fun. And I, I'm, I'm a little worried that I know it's getting released because, man, do I sound stupid. <laughs> but that just means you did a damn good job. We have a good show going on here. <laughs> well, thanks, man. Let's do it again soon. Well, that was interesting. If you enjoyed this conversation, consider sharing it with someone else you think might find it interesting. Even better, try to find someone you think might disagree with something here and take some time to listen to their perspective. Try to have a meaningful, good-faith conversation. Practice listening deeply and patiently, and speaking clearly and precisely. I think if we can get better at this, we might actually change the world. Anyway, thanks for listening. I'll catch you next time. 